Hello, everyone, and welcome to Congo, Colonization and Conservation, Episode 5, A Dream for Africa, a production of Gorilla Radio Show. This episode will likely be the final main installment of the series. We're incredibly grateful that we have been given such a special chance to create this series for you, and we hope that we are given such an opportunity again in the future. We would also like to extend our gratitude to our friend Virgil for being such an excellent recurring guest and source of knowledge while we created this series for you. This episode, as with all others previously, was written by the three of us, your hosts, Austin, Chandran, and myself, Greg. Today, we will be focusing on closing the gaps left in our previous episodes, especially when pertaining to the political situation in sub-Saharan Africa from the 1960s to the present, as well as the current state of wildlife conservation. We will do our absolute best in this episode to give context, closure, and hopefully insight into the complicated political landscapes of nations such as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Republic of Congo, Cameroon, Rwanda, the Central African Republic, Kenya, Tanzania, and others. The aforementioned nations are on the front lines of some of the more famous wildlife conservation efforts worldwide, from great apes to rhinos and elephants. While we do not have the recording or research time to adequately cover each of these nations in depth, we will do our absolute best to maintain the utmost accuracy in our coverage of each and provide to you, our listeners, picture that provides insight into the world of conservation in a region beguiled by civil strife, war, foreign interference, and unceasing poverty. Some final notes before we begin. This episode will definitely harken back to episode one, as it will be more structured than our last few episodes, mainly due to the nature of the content we will be discussing. We will do our best to not come off stiff, or like we're just reading from a page, but you know, please bear with us here. Finally, as always with this series, we're always welcome to comments, criticism, and corrections on our work. Uh, If you feel like we got something wrong, don't hesitate to reach out to us on any of our social media platforms or directly to our email, gorillaradioshow at gmail.com. But with that being said, let's begin episode five, A Dream for Africa. We begin in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, July 5th, 1960. This is generally considered the beginning of what would become known as the Congo Crisis, a state of unrest and civil war in the DRC that would last until November of 1965. Over the course of the Congo Crisis, the DRC would lose roughly 100,000 soldiers and civilians, as well as possibly its most important founding father, Patrice Lumumba. Sadly, this would not be the end of the DRCs, known between 1965 and 1997 as Zaire, troubles over the course of the 20th century. Insurgencies, civil war, great war, and genocide have all touched the nation over the past 60 years. Since 1998 alone, 5.4 million people have met similar ends in the country due to turmoil, poverty, war, and ethnic conflict. On June 30th, 1960, in an official ceremony headed by Leopold's son and Belgian King Baudouin I and Patrice Lumumba, Belgian colonial rule ended and the new dawn shone on the heart of Africa. This would be maybe the last bright day in Congolese history for many years. Almost immediately following Congolese independence, political turmoil slowly and then very rapidly took hold of the fledgling nation. Nominally a semi-presidential republic, the original Congolese constitution was centralist in nature, concentrating power in the central government in Leopoldville, 
renamed Kinshasa in 1966, and dividing it between the president and the prime minister. The two gentlemen who held these titles, whose names we should know by now, are Joseph Kasavubu, president, and Patrice Lumumba, the prime minister. Because we haven't spoken about uh, this president, Joseph Kasavubu, in a long time, could you please remind us in the audience who this guy is? So, Joseph Kasavubu was an ally of Patrice Lumumba. Um, The two of them essentially spearheaded the Congolese independence movement. Um, And not to give too much away in the next couple minutes, but um, Kasavubu would eventually betray uh, Patrice Lumumba. in an effort to end the Congo crisis. Um, his motives are uh, unclear um, and, and kind of lost to history because he was not really the central figure of the Congo crisis. Um, however, at least from my personal historical perspective, it would seem that Kasavubu wasn't necessarily trying to undermine Lumumba or destroy the Congo. More so, um, he and Lumumba disagreed on the way to end the crisis and what would be the best path forward to create some stability in the fledgling country. Now, I don't know if you've written about this in the script, but what are like the what were the ideological differences between the two men? Um, so Lumumba's ideology was not really very well described. Um, mm. He's described by many people um, as a, as a Pan African socialist. Um, he never used those words himself. Um, he never really prescribed an ideology to himself. He's usually labeled as such because when the United States um, refused to send troops in to help uh, Lumumba end the Congo crisis, he just did honestly what any pragmatic politician probably would have done in that time, which is he, he just said, okay, and he sent his next telegram to the Soviet Union and asked them for support which kind of immediately branded him as some sort of communist. Um, he wasn't a communist um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. This is a man who wanted an independent black country. Um, he's, well, and we'll speak about this later. Um, he's a lot like uh, Julius Nyeri, uh, who was the first president of Tanzania, um, where, where Nyeri was directly a socialist, their main goal was to create a successful black nation um, without being a puppet of a, of a white European country. Okay. And for Kasavubu, was he was he an avowed socialist? Was he a... So, Kasavubu, there's not a ton of information on Kasavubu. I mean, obviously there are uh, biographies of him and there are books that describe um, the Congo crisis and those first few weeks of Congolese independence. His ideology can be seen more as this guy was just more of a nationalist. Um, most of the f- the very first presidents and prime ministers of of newly independent countries in Africa they were they were nationalists first. They wanted independence for their homeland. Of yeah. Um, and so, Kasavubu's personal political ideology. Both of these gentlemen would be considered far left in the United States today. Um, think of both of them as much more militant Bernie Sanders. Um, that's really their that's really their political stances. Um, they're 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 democratic socialists, for lack of a better term. Send somebody Bernie who Sanders might be in the fucking yeah, Congo. Yeah, somebody who might be comparable um, is actually Gaddafi. Um, but these guys had elections. That's really the main mm-hmm. difference. Um, whereas Gaddafi had no elections and came to power in a coup. 
these these gentlemen held much of the same kind of political leanings as Gaddafi did, just without the military coup part. Okay. Yeah, very 20th century nationalist in the face of, you know, global imperialism. Yes, and also it's important to note that, and we can talk about this more later on, um, basically every head of state that we're going to talk about um, studied in either France or London at some point, mm-hmm. and they mingled with some of the the more famous than they are names um, in revolutionary uh, movements around the world. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of these guys like knew Ho Chi Minh, and they had met Mao. Like these are people who had been involved in their struggles since the 1920s and 30s. That's important to note. Independence in Africa didn't just appear in 1960. Um, these are people who had been struggling for their independence since usually right before or right after the end of the First World War. In the early days of July, as celebrations of independence spread across the country, in Leopoldville, Lieutenant General Emil Janssens, commander of the Force Publique, gathered the white officers of Leopoldville garrison and told them that things under his command would remain as they were during the colonial administration, underlining his point by writing, before independence equals after independence on a blackboard for his men. Very uh, straightforward, you know, uh, nothing will fundamentally change type beat. It's also unknown what day this was. So just for everybody listening at home, all everything we're going to talk about about the Congo in the next 15 minutes, this all happened in the span of about 10 days. Yeah, um, up wow. until we get to the part where they where Lumumba's assassinated. This was all happening like within a week. So it, the this moment with uh, General Jansen's, it, it's unknown what day this was. Um, they got independence July 1st. So this happened sometime between the first and the fifth. Yeah, very, uh, very, very quick. Very quick. On the fifth of July, nineteen sixty, several units of the Force Publique, the ex-Belgian but not yet really the Congolese military, mutinied against their white officers in Tiesville, spreading to Leopoldville the next day. These soldiers mutinied out of anger that they had not seen the promotions, increases in pay and an end to white-led officer corps immediately after independence that they had expected and hoped for. Between July 5th and July 9th, Lumumba renamed the Force Publique to the Army Nationale Congolaise, where he promoted all black soldiers by at least one rank and sacked Jansen's in favor of Congolese native Victor Lundula and cousin of Lumumba. Lumumba and Kasavubu personally intervened in the mutiny as Leopoldville in Tiesville. I'm sorry, that should be at. Yeah, okay. Let's see. Um, Lumumba and Kasavubu personally intervened in the mutiny at Leopoldville and Tiesville. However, across the new nation, chaos erupted. Soldiers mutinied. Congolese civilians and soldiers began looting the properties of white colonists, killing many with reports of the rape of Belgian women reported. So, before I, I go on to the next part that's, that's scripted here, everyone, um... I want to make a little side note. So throughout the series, we, we've attempted to use Congolese historians when possible, um, just to honestly center the voices of the people who are being affected. Um, so when it comes to this last statement that Austin just read, this does not actually come from Congolese historians. Congolese historians mention looting, they mention rape, um, but they, they very they very much minimize it. And 
while I want to center um, the voices of obviously Africans and African historians, we do know very factually that these things did happen on a very, very mass scale. Um, this was actually an atrocity committed by the Congolese against the Belgians. Um, it's not justified. Um, the Congolese obviously have suffered massively under Belgian rule. Personally, two wrongs don't necessarily make a right, guys. So this this did happen. Um, there there were reports of of like mass atrocities. Um, there's a couple of reports that I did read um, where ANC soldiers went into a couple of villages. Because um, think of the Congo like apartheid South Africa. There were white towns, black towns, um, where Congolese soldiers kind of went into a black town and killed all of the men and children and then raped all of the women and then killed them too. Like this did happen a couple of times. It wasn't like incredibly widespread, but when it did happen, it was really bad. Um, so this is not really mentioned in Congolese histor histories. This is mentioned more in European histories and also news reports from the time. Um, how trustworthy they are is, is up for debate, um, but it is important to mention this because it does provide a little bit of context for what Belgium does next, which I'm about to tell you. So um, on July the 9th, without the permission of the Congolese government, Belgium deployed paratroopers to the Congo. Over the course of the following week, 10,000 white Belgians fled the country, and the Belgian government shelled the um, Atlantic port of uh, Matadi, um, killing 19 Congolese civilians. The exodus of Belgian whites threw the civil service of the DRC into disarray, from which it would not recover until the end of the crisis, and arguably until today. On July 11th, Moïse Chambé, leader of uh, Konakat, one of the main opposition parties in the DRC, declared the province of Katanga an independent nation, the state of Katanga, with himself as president. Less than a month later, on August the 8th, a section of the neighboring Kasai province also declared independence as the mining state of South Kasai. On July the 14th, the United Nation replaced the Belgians in the Congo with its own troops, uh, known as ONUC, a move initially welcomed by Lumumba's government. However, the UN refused to use its troops to help suppress the rebellions in the south of the country. Furious and desperate, Lumumba initially sought help from the United States. When President Dwight Eisenhower refused to provide assistance, Lumumba turned to the USSR, who agreed to send weapons, logistical support, and technical advisors. This move most likely sealed Lumumba's fate as President Kasavubu and much of the Congolese government were highly uneasy about receiving help from the communist USSR and only served to cement U.S. and Belgian positions against Lumumba's government. On September the 5th, President Kasavubu unilaterally dismissed Lumumba with the promise of American backing. In retaliation, Lumumba attempted to dismiss Kasavubu, but did not have enough support to do so, precipitating a constitutional crisis. In reaction, Joseph Mobutu, an ally of Kasavubu, carried out a bloodless coup, dismissed both men, and replaced them with a panel of university graduates. It was at this time that Lumumba went under house arrest, where he would remain um, for most of the rest of his life. On December 1st, 1960, after attempting to flee house arrest and travel east to Stanleyville, where he believed he had a base of support, on December 7th, the USSR attempted to pass a UN Security Council resolution calling for his release and reinstatement, which was defeated 8-2. On the 14th, all the... Oh, which was defeated 8-2 on the 14th. 
All the while, Lumumba was being tortured and beaten in Mobutu's captivity. On the 17th of January, 1961, Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba was handed over to Katangan forces and executed by order of Belgian contract officer Julian Gatt, who we have discussed previously. So, um, you guys have any questions about what led up to Patrice Lumumba's death? Um... Okay. No, it's it seems pretty straightforward. I, I do know that they they were really brutal yeah, about killing so Lumumba. Lumumba. Was, uh, partially egged yeah, on by the so Belgians. We, did, we went over this in the or, first episode, which is why I didn't like really go super into depth about his death specifically. Um, but yes, Lumumba was was I mean, he was shot to death. Um, however, afterwards, in order to prevent um, any kind of shrine or monument to the man. Um, his body was destroyed. Um, he was essentially melted in a vat of acid, um, which means that as of today, which I believe we've, we spoke about in the first episode, all that was really recovered from Lumumba's body was a couple of teeth, which were re- returned to the Congo and Lumumba's family, I, I believe sometime in the 2010s. It might've been like 2012 or 2014. Um, Again, there were no punishments handed down for the people who did this to Lumumba. Um, these Belgian officers went back to Belgium and lived out a full life, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, what happened to Lumumba was a crime. Um, and I think when I mentioned the Security Council vote that the USSR attempted to push through, I think we can guess on who the no votes were. It was the U.S. and I believe actually it was Nationalist China because they still held the Security Council seat at the time, like Taiwan. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so was had Lumumba lost all this support within his government because at a very base level, yes. Dealings with the US um, in a more complicated sense, Lumumba lost yeah. a lot of the influence he had um, because he was anti-corruption. Um, and one of the first things that the brand new independent Congolese legislature oh, attempted see. to do was give itself a massive raise. Um, much like every other Congress and every country in the entire world, they only care about themselves. So um, this is a country that is poor. It has just received its independence. Its GDP is is equivalent, I, I believe at the time, to like the state of Vermont, um, which is not a lot. So... The Congress of the country, I believe it was called the Congolese Parliament, um, they gave themselves a raise that was so large that it would, have, it would have been a visible chunk of the state's budget every year. Um, and Lumumba did not like that. And he came out and mm-hmm. spoke against it, which lost him most of his favor. Um, and then when he tried to deal with the USSR, um, Kasavubu kind of took that opportunity as a way to kind of take more power for himself. Um, it was supposed to be a system where the president and prime minister kind of were, were equal. They shared 50% of the power, um, which yeah. never works. In any country where this has been tried, this never works. Um, it's a very egalitarian idea, um, but it, it rarely works because personalities involved clash. Um, so they were kind of always struggling. Lumumba would come out with a policy and then Kasavubu would come out with a, a policy that was like a little bit different from it. And they would both try to enforce it. Um, Granted, their government lasted six months. It, it, it did not last. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I was always really interested to see if Lumumba was interested in pursuing any like conservation-based policies, but there's he didn't. He, he, he wasn't in government. He wasn't in government long enough to have really enough do time anything. to get there. So yeah, yeah. There's some. They're still trying to deal with their revolution. They're still trying to make the revolution work. Um. But yeah, so so Lumumba has lost support within the Congress, but. He, he has a lot, having, of popular he has a lot of popular support, support right? That's and so seeing. there's only a couple of big cities in the Congo, and this, that's remain, this remains true today. There's only a couple of big cities. So Stanleyville was one of the other big cities of the Congo where Lumumba's, Lumumba's mm-hmm. ethnic group, which is important. This, this comes through in the Congo constantly. Lumumba's actual ethnic group, his, his group, were there. That's, that's the area of the country where, where they're from. So he had support there and also... His politics were more popular in that part of the country. Uh, they weren't really pos- uh, as popular in uh, Leopoldville. He did enjoy popular support throughout the country, but um, as we'll see, that doesn't really mean anything um, unless the rest of your government backs you. By February of 1961, Mobutu had reappointed Kasavubu as president of the DRC. But by this point, Mobutu would hold all the real power in the country. Over the next four years, Mobutu would ruthlessly clamp down on dissent and separatism, defeating Katanga and South Kasai as independent states, as well as putting down Simba and Kwilu ethnic rebellions. Taking formal power via a coup in 1965 and losing power only in 1997, putting down roughly a dozen rebellions, invasions, and political dissensions in his time, Mobutu would reshape the DRC as a nation built to serve and enrich himself and his allies, both in the Congo and in Western governments and corporations. Mm, Let me try that. The mark he left on the country remains to this day and has contributed deeply to the poverty, ethnic strife, and underdevelopment the nation still suffers today. Between 1997 and 2003, the First and Second Congo Wars, known as the African Great War, were fought in and around the DRC. Due to the collapse of Mobutu's government, the Rwandan genocide, and the end of the Cold War, as well as economic investment in the area, all culminated in warfare and conflict that would kill millions. While this conflict officially ended in 2003 with the Sun City Agreement, the Pretoria Accord, and the end of the Angolan Civil War, it continues on to this day with such groups such as the Lord's Resistance Army fighting insurgencies throughout the region. So uh, I'd like to say really quickly, um, Mobutu was a uh, an ally of Reagan, I believe. Mobutu uh, was a, but, a right-wing arc. Yeah, so um, Reagan... At, at, at his very core, this, is, yeah. this was a, mm-hmm. a military junta. Um, by all accounts, Mobutu was a military officer who remained a military officer throughout his entire time in power. Um, a fun anecdote of Mobutu's corruption is the, I believe, 1977 Rumble in the Jungle. Um, this was the fight, and I believe it's George Foreman? No. Rumble in the Jungle. It was Muhammad Ali, and who the hell did he fight? Yeah, George Foreman. Um, so George Foreman and Muhammad Ali did a prize fight in Kinshasa. Um, 
this was an incredibly corrupt event. Um, it happened in 1974, actually. Um, Mobutu personally approved the fight as a way to kind of make the Zaire at the time um, look like a, a more modern and developing country by hosting this international sporting event. Um, it was actually funded by some Belgian and I believe Dutch uh, oil companies. Um, as well as some kickbacks from the U.S. government. Um, in return for hosting this fight, uh, Mobutu got some more military equipment, um, a bunch of fucking money. Um, Zaire remained poor throughout its entire existence. Uh, Mobutu kind of, all the wealth the country did had went directly to Mobutu. Um, and so the Congo had multiple currency devaluations. But by the end, think of it as Weimar Germany, where you'd have to have, have you would have to have a, a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Um, yeah, and uh, I will say for all of his uh, sort of vying for support from the American government and Reagan specifically. Uh, Reagan did not return the favor in the slightest. Uh, he refused to call Mobutu by his right name, uh, repeatedly in speeches mentioning him, calling him Mobutu and never correcting himself. And also in a phone call with Nixon called all Africans monkeys. So, you know, tracks for Nixon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's disrespectful. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an alliance built not with any kind of meaningful care or, or consideration yeah. for this African nation, but you know, they're, 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 they're to Reagan. It is an opportunity yeah. to exploit another developing country. Um, no, so we're speaking of military hints we're speaking about, you know, uh, uh, switching your European or, you know, like we say, we saw, uh, 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 what's his name? Lumumba. Lumumba asked the U.S. for support. They deny it. He goes to the USSR. Currently, right now, we are seeing in the same in Africa right now. All a lot of these French colonized nations are ending their agreements with. There's been a big junta just just happened Niger and in, in Niger. Is that correct? Is that where the junta happened? <laughs> oh, I don't mean the, yes. The, there's the, a junta in Niger, in Niger where the and a junta in Burkina Faso and mm-hmm. also in Mali. And also mm-hmm. in Senegal, and also in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Lots of juntas. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I see. Keep track of this, folks. It's all French colonies. French are not very popular. This is a common thing. We'll talk about yeah. it in a minute. But, um, Ginger, why don't you read the last thing? Because I have something important to say after that. We hope this overview of the DRC has explained further the political situation of the Congo. Um, and now we can give you a brief overview of the DRC's neighbors, as they are both powerful political influences on the country and important partners in the fight for wildlife conservation. I know, because I, I wrote most of this. Um, I'm not covering every single neighbor of the Congo. Um, what I've done is I've picked out essentially the more politically interesting ones, um, the ones that have had something happen within them that has contributed to the Congo, um, contributed to the Congo's politics and their issues. Um, so there will be some notable absences. Um, we're not going to be speaking about Uganda very much, um, Burundi very much, um, or Malawi very much, but, um, they are there. 
they are a part of the fight for uh, wildlife conservation. It's just that we don't have time to cover 15 countries. We have time to cover eight. So um, that yeah. being said, let's let's go ahead and keep on going. So we're going to try to give you guys a cursory look at the Congo's neighbors, just so you have the context necessary for our discussion on wildlife conservation and its challenges. As Greg just said, our first neighbor is the Republic of Congo, or Congo-Brazzaville, the nearly identically named and often confused for its neighbor, the DRC. The Republic of Congo is a Francophone nation granted independence by France in 1960. It has a tumultuous history post-independence, much like its neighbor, known as the People's Republic of Congo, from 1969 to 1992. The country suffered multiple coup d'etats, many of which supported or fomented by their former French overlords, culminating in the 1997 to 1999 Congo Civil War. Today, while democratic and relatively stable by regional standards, the Republic of Congo is a poor nation, dependent on its oil production and finding itself near the bottom of the Human Development Index list. 153rd out of 191 countries. Congo Brazzaville, it, it was officially a Marxist-Leninist state um, from 1969 to 1992. That wasn't really the case. Um, it, it was from 1969 to about 1975. Um, and things were actually going pretty well up until that point. Um, they were receiving a lot of material, money, um, and technical assistance from the USSR at this time. Um, Something you'll notice throughout Africa is a lot of their infrastructure was very good um, up until about the 1970s. Um, they were building roads. They were building railroads. They had things. Um, so once the USSR stopped stopped being able and stopped being willing um, to just kind of throw money at Africa um, to help them build things, um, that you see a lot of these countries start to fall very rapidly. Um, there were... Yeah. Because they lost their only ally on the world stage, really. It just says, uh, you know, I just wrote suffered multiple coup d'etats. I believe the number is somewhere between 7 and 10 in 30 years they had that many coups. Um, It was seen as a key player between Zaire and um, the more, the the further north Sahel countries. Um, So the West and the the Soviets were constantly cooing the country um it's incredibly mm-hmm. poor um i believe only about 10 percent of it has electricity um, it's that kind of poor um, so yeah that's that's the other congo i would just like to say really quickly that like when we say that these countries like rapidly deteriorated deteriorated after soviet support stopped it's not because you know, they were Soviet puppet states or that they were propped up entirely by the Soviets. It's because we live in a global economy. If you don't have international trading partners, you can't really do anything. Like, the states that don't have any allies in this world right now are the ones that are incredibly poor or isolated pariah states. Oh, also remember, all of these countries are ex-French colonies. Um, Every time we say Francophone nation... They're ex-French colonies, and they aren't really independent. None of them are. Um, they are they're puppets of the French government itself. So basically all the wealth, all the resource wealth that they extract goes directly to France. Mm-hmm. 
Next on our list is Cameroon, officially the Republic of Cameroon. It is a joint Francophone and Anglophone nation, part of two colonies, French and English Cameroon. French Cameroon was granted independence at the same time as its neighbor, the, the Republic of Congo, and unified a year later on October 1st, 1961 with English Cameroon, celebrated each year as Unification Day. Cameroon, while one of the few nations in Central Africa to have never fallen victim to a violent government overthrow, has its own share of problems. Cameroon's first president, Amadou Ahijo, was well-intentioned, but failed in many of his economic development plans. Gotcha. His successor, Paul Bia, has been in power since 1982, and has done little to uplift much of the country from poverty. Even as the country's revenues from oil and mining continue to grow year over year. Cameroon is also ecologically a transitional nation. The south of the country is lush rainforest. The central regions are firmly in the Sahel, while the northernmost reaches touch the Sahara Desert itself. Politically, this means Cameroon suffers from many of the problems that Sahel nations face, namely Islamic fundamentalist insurgencies in Nigeria, Chad, and Niger have a tendency to spill over into Cameroonian territory, leading to sporadic bouts of violence within the country. The country also faces a low-grade civil war in the south as English-speaking areas of the country look to secede from Cameroon as the Republic of Ambazonia. Violent clashes over water rights are also common in the north, leading to refugees fleeing into Chad and Nigeria. Any questions? Um, how how long has this um, uh, uh, civil well, war this, been going? Well, uh, this Republic of Ambazonia, as they call it, um, was the English colony of Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Um, English Cameroon okay, so English is trying Cameroon to is re-separate. Trying to separate um, itself. They've been doing so since about the 80s. Uh-huh. started out at normal, like protests, and it's kind of been a violent fight for the last 15 or so years where every now and then these rebels will attack a, a Cameroonian, like, army convoy um it's not like a soup it's not like pitched battle uh-huh. um it's nothing like some of the other wars we'll talk about um but uh it, it's it's an interesting country yeah um I, I kind of conflict. included it on this list of countries to talk about mostly because it's an excellent microcosm of africa as a whole it kind of includes all of its eco regions um and politically, it faces all of the challenges of Central African countries and all of the challenges of the, the more the more deserty um, Sahel countries. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 not it's not great. It's a little bit more. It's think of it this way: like it's they got a lot of problems. This is one of the more stable countries um, in the region. Um, so. <sighs> Next on our list is the Central African Republic, or CAR. Um, failing anything incredibly serious and depressing, um, to, to be quite honest, the, the, the CAR is an absolute fucking shit show. Um, there, there's no like good way to say this. Um, so it was granted independence from France on the 13th of August, 1960. Immediately, the country suffered a legislative coup by David Dacko, who was the country's first president who by 1962 had eliminated all political opposition. In 1965, 
Dacca was overthrown by C.A.R. Colonel Jean Bedel Bacasa, who was also a cousin of Dacco. Um Oh, I'm sorry. Craig, I think you're touching the mic a little bit. There's like some um, rubbing going on. <laughs> fuck, where was I? Uh, who by night? Um, the country immediately suffered a legislative coup by David Dacko, the country's first president, who by 1962 had eliminated all political opposition. In 1965, Dacko was overthrown by his cousin, um, C.A.R. Colonel Jean Bedel Bacasa, who suspended the Constitution and dissolved the National Assembly. He declared himself president for life in 1972. On December 4th, 1976, Bacasa declared himself Emperor Bacasa I of the Central African Empire, um, as the country was later officially renamed. In 1977, Emperor Bacasa crowned himself in an incredibly expensive ceremony, which cost 20 million US dollars at the time, which was one third of the entire national budget of the Central African Republic. Um, despite lavish invitations, essentially he sent an invitation to every head of state of every country on the planet. Um, nobody attended the ceremony. No other head of state attended the ceremony. Um, by the time he declared himself emperor, Damn. Damn. he was a laughingstock. Um, the New York Times, um, the London Times, African newspapers, they would run stories basically calling him a madman and an idiot. Um, and don't worry, folks, he really fucking was. Um, this is not a good person. This is not a, this is, this is someone who completely on his own. I mean, very emperor. few good yeah, people um, have declared themselves so emperor. Let's yeah. also give me, a little, give me a little context for this. Um, Jean Bedel Bacasa was a veteran of World War II. He fought for the French. Obviously, this is a French colony. Um, he thought he was Napoleon. He very literally thought he was Napoleon. Um, so what he did was try to be Napoleon, but in Central this. Africa. So, so that's why he's emperor here. That's why he's Emperor Bokasa I. He wants to emulate Napoleon. So, Bokasa was a certifiably crazy person. Under his rule, um, which was supported by France for a time, torture, mass murder, and corruption were rampant. Oh, and also, he ate people. There's, there's photographic, there's real evidence of him eating people. He would cook and eat people he didn't like um there is eyewitness testimony and photographs of the walk-in freezer um at the palace that he lived in in bengui which is the capital um of of human corpses in there that they would be butchered and then cooked and eaten by bokasa I, I imagine france heard of this and was just like well yeah i guess so we this, could try okay. giving so, support and see what happens so this is so, so france supported him up to a point um so by January of 1979, um, in the wake of food riots in the capital of Bangui, um, which there shouldn't have been because France was sending um, Central Africa um, enough food. I believe the numbers were they were sending enough food to feed every person in this country twice um, because Bacasa kept asking for more and more. And then nobody knows where it's going um, because it wasn't going to the people of the country. Um, so... France had tired of his antics, misuse of funds, torture, horrible human rights abuses, all essentially under their watch. So 
This is the only time I am ever going to say this on this show or at any other moment in my life. But on the 20th of September, 1979, the French government orchestrated a coup d'etat against Bokassa, and that was a very, very, very good thing. Um, this man was destroying this country, and even though the French did what they did, not necessarily out of humanitarian love, which I will say, if you read these reports, it does seem like this was that was a big part of it for them, so congrats it was also for their own economic gain they needed it they needed a puppet um so they reinstated daco as president um that didn't last very long in 1981 um daco was overthrown by andre kalingba in 1993 democratic elections were held for the very first time and Ange felix patasse was elected to lead the country this went about as well as you would expect given the above and patasse murdered uh murdered members of the government and purged his rivals um he also attempted to let's it never says this in any of the reading but i'm gonna say ethnically cleanse his rivals ethnic groups uh and their influence in 1998 patasse was somehow re-elected even though he was wildly unpopular in the country in 2001 rebels attempted a coup of their own that ended in failure this led to the Central African Bush War, with Patasse's rival, Francois Bozizé, launching a military invasion of the country from neighboring Chad and taking control of the government in 2004. In 2006, this war resumed with the French military forces uh, supporting Bozizé's troops. At the time of writing this, the Central African Republic is currently embroiled in a ten-sided civil war, and that's just the local groups. Um, these groups are supported by a diverse group of powers, including, but not limited to, South Africa, Russia, Rwanda, the United Nations, Syria, France, the EU, military contracting groups such as Wagner, and the United States. And that is not all of them. Um, so, really, there's probably almost 20 different participants in this conflict. Um... The Central African Republic sits in last place in most international rankings for life expectancy, health care, access to water, access to health services, transportation. There, There is only one main paved road in this entire country, and for reference, it's it's bigger than Texas. It's, it's, it's pretty big. Um, that is the Central African Republic. It is considered by all accounts a failed state. Um, the central government has no real authority. Um, the French colonial project um, thoroughly has thoroughly destroyed this country, um, as well as simply just the greed of, of different politicians within it. Um, a fun little anecdote about the Central African Republic is I tried to email them. Um, I tried to email, uh, they have one national park, um, and I tried to email the, the Ministry of the Interior, which is what their very, very old website says to do, if you have questions, because um, I wanted to see what, what they do. I wanted to know what they do um, for conservation work there. Um, and the, the TLD, which is the country code when you go to a website that's not in the U.S., um, it's turned off. 
Um, I tried to email them and their country code is, is turned off. Um, it bounces back and says the internet TLD that you are attempting to use has been disconnected from ICANN, which is the, the internet regulatory body for the entire world. And in case you don't know what a top-level domain is, it's like when you go to a foreign website, if you're American, if you go to a foreign website, you'll go like to, you know, yeah. .ca for a they're, they're in, website. Their government like websites don't domain. work. They don't have them. Um, they, that, it's not great. Um, so th this is this is like very seriously, this is the, one of the saddest stories um, of any country um, I've, I've ever read for this show. Um, this is a country of tens of millions of people. Um, who essentially have no future. Um, millions of people have died there, are dying there, and are receiving no help. I'm beginning to see why conservation in Africa is a bit yeah. of a complicated This is also the northern neighbor of the DRC. They, they border the entire northern part of the country. And, you know, keep in mind... You know, borders are arbitrary. The animals... Especially arbitrary. You know. In Africa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there there can be no joint efforts. There can be no large-scale uh, uh, focus on this because... They don't even have a website. They don't, even, they don't have a website. There's fundamentally the... the like, listen, not to be... And this is this is gonna, this is gonna sound such, this is such a fucking white annoying thing to say. Apologies, not to be like you know, uh, you know, uh, anthrocentric or whatever. But like when when uh, when a government cannot provide anything, any services for its people, its human beings living there, it, it's no no imagine. There's no imagination. There's no capable. There's no capability to organize anything for for animals. Um, it's, yeah. it's also this is what colonialism one does. One more thing about the Cong about the Central African Republic before we move on. Um, you may have seen the Central African Republic in the news headlines in the last six months um, because the the government hasn't formally invited um, both the Russians and Wagner Group to come into the country to help the central government um, eradicate um, its multiple different groups of rebels. Um, I would like to remind everyone at home that Russia is no longer the Soviet Union. They are not doing an anti-imperialist project. While they might be, at least in my opinion, slightly, slightly less evil and extractive compared to the French, Russia is a country run by oligarchs. Um, they are looking to enrich themselves. Um, the Central African Republic is very, very rich. Um, it is it is considered one of the richest countries in the world in terms of natural resources. Um, so, yeah, very, very common theme. Africa is the most mineral-rich continent in the world. So this is a theme for all of these countries. Um, so, yeah, so while Russia might be an okay partner for them for now understand that this is also Russian colonialism. Um, this is neo-colonialism at its, at its heart. And Wagner is known for doing some war crimes. So keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what's happening right now. 
Moving on to Rwanda, also a former Belgian colony, the most notable event in Rwandan history since independence is the Rwandan Genocide. Perpetrated over the course of 100 days in 1994, the Hutu ethnic group committed a mass murder of the Tutsi ethnic group with an estimated 491 to 800,000 Tutsis killed. Part of the 1990-1994 Rwandan Civil War, the genocide was part of the larger conflict between the Tutsi and Hutu ethnic groups. Previously, in 1962, a Tutsi monarchy was replaced with the Hutu-led republic, leading to 336,000 Tutsi refugees fleeing to neighboring countries like the Congo. In 1990, a group of these Tutsi refugees, led by Paul Kagame, invaded Rwanda. Facing military setbacks, the Tutsi forces retreated into the Virunga Mountains of the Congo, including the National Park, fighting a low-level guerrilla war through early 1994. With the onset of the Hutu power group's genocide in the country, the Tutsi rebels restarted their offensive in earnest to end the genocide. By the end of July 1994, the government and genocidaires had been forced into the DRC, and a new Rwandan government under Kagame was formed. In 1996, Kagame's government invaded the Congo, starting the First Congo War, which removed Mobutu from power in the DRC, killing 200,000 people in the process, and entangling the powers of Central Africa in conflict. That would last until the new millennium. If you'd like to learn more about the Rwandan genocide and the political environment around Rwanda and Central Africa at the time, we recommend you watch the film Hotel Rwanda, as well as the eyewitness account Shake Hands with the Devil, The Failure of Humanity in Rwanda by Lieutenant General Romeo... So... Dallier. Okay, I know that this section was short, and we kind of breezed through it. Um, I highly recommend you read that book, uh, Shake Hands with the Devil. Um, it's by a, a Canadian lieutenant general who was part of the UN mission to Rwanda at the time. The, the UN wasn't allowed to intervene in the genocide. Um, they, they didn't stop it. They were there. They witnessed it. They didn't stop it. Um, so this, this general was there and wrote down what he saw. Um, if you've ever seen the film Hotel Rwanda, it's very good, and it goes into detail about what was happening. Uh, Hutu Power was a hate group. I don't have a good an analog for them, for people at home. Think of them almost like the KKK, though. Um, this is a hate group. This is a, this is a group that wants to eliminate a complete other ethnic group from the country. Um, Paul Kagame, um key figure um, who end, helped end this genocide um, and then begin the first Congo War, which is the, the big, it's the African Great War. Um, this, this drew in um, combatants from basically every country that surrounds the Congo. Um, so it was about 11 different nations in total. Um, resulted in the overthrow of Mobutu. It resulted in the kind of endless insurgent groups that we see in the northern uh, DRC. It contributed to the Central African Republic's um, ongoing civil war. Um, and mind you, Rwanda is a very small country. It, it's about the size of Long Island. Um, and the DRC is, I believe, like the fifth biggest country on Earth. Um, so they're like, this is a very small country that had a very, very large influence on its very, very large neighbor. Um, so yeah, that that's that's Rwanda. Our final two neighbors, 
Kenya and Tanzania, former colonies of the British Empire, Tanzania by way of Germany, these two nations are considered among the rising stars of Eastern Africa, large, populous, and rapidly developing. These countries share a similar but politically different post-colonial history. Tanzania was granted its independence in 1961 and became a presidential republic on December 9th of 1962. As the Republic of Tanganyika unified with the just offshore archipelago of Zanzibar, the country was officially renamed the United Republic of Tanzania, combining the names Tanganyika and Zanzibar. Julius Nyer was the first president of Tanzania. A pan-Africanist and socialist, Nyer led Tanzania until 1985, including through the Ugandan invasion of the country which eventually led to a Tanzanian victory and the deposition of the Ugandan government and its dictator, Idi Amin. Tanzania ranks highly in democratic elections, economic growth, and political and diplomatical stability. The nation, however, suffers from food insecurity, poor records on LGBTQ rights, and lack of rural electrification. Kenya, Tanzania's northern neighbor, was granted independence on the 12th of December 1964 as the Republic of Kenya. The first president and founding father of the nation was a certain Jomo Kenyatta, who we briefly touched upon last episode. Kenyatta was convicted in his trial that Louis Leakey translated in and sentenced to hard labor. During his imprisonment, Tanzanian president Julius Nyer... Ghanaian, right? Yeah. Ghanaian? During his imprisonment, Tanzanian President Julius Nyer and Ghanaian President Kwame Nkrumah lobbied for his release. In 1961, released from prison, Kenyatta befriended the final colonial governor, Malcolm MacDonald, which helped speed the process. Kenya was one of the few colonial states in Africa that did not suffer from a massive white settler exodus upon independence because of the work Kenyatta in promising that they would not be discriminated against. Kenyatta became the first president of the country in 1964. However, his legacy remains mixed. An administration highlighted by massive GDP growth was burdened with the lack of political freedom and rampant corruption and cronyism. Kenyatta would rule until his death in 1978. What followed was a decade of turmoil with abortive coup attempts and corrupt governments culminating in a 1991 transition to multi-party democracy. Moving into the modern day, Kenya has seen economic growth but suffers from the same imbalances as its southern neighbor, with food insecurity, poor records on human rights, and a lack of equal distribution of development Kenya is changing, so, um, albeit slow. Couple notes on these two countries. Um, their their histories might seem a little bit more um, easy. Might be a, a good word or, or smooth. Um, this is a a common theme which has been explored in the past. Um, these are English colonies, um, and for reasons, honestly, I could we could go into very quickly. Um, Former English colonies tend to do very well um, when it comes to like their governance. Um, they're, they're not always the best. 
they do markedly better than French and Belgian colonies. Um, this is mainly because of the British colonial system itself wasn't... Um, Okay, so the French colonial system is just like a series of slave drivers. Um, they do nothing. They they do nothing but extract um, from their colonies. And the English, while engaged in colonialism, which is evil and bad, just let's make that clear. The the English also like very heavily invested in their colonies as a part of the empire. Um, yeah, they their their colonies they, were. They think were of every single one of these colonies the same way that the United States was treated as a colony. It it was developed. Um, the the English put money into their mm. infrastructure. They gave them education systems. They had to fight for those. Um, but by the 1960s, um, uh, right before these countries achieved independence, um, they 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 did have native education systems. They were regular schools. They were relatively well funded by colonial standards. Um. And they did not have the same mindset. So in in French colonies, in Belgian colonies, what you have is there's a very, very small cadre of, of native African politicians, military officers who had been educated in France in the French way in how to administer, administer a colony, which was very extractive. Um, it, it was designed to pull wealth out of the country, pull it out of the trees, pull it out of the ground, pull it out of whatever the fuck you can. And so uh, what happens a lot is when you have these military coups in former uh, French Africa, um, is, is there these, these military officers just applying the same logic that the French already applied. Um, and so there is no uplift of the community. Um, the difference when you go to a, a, usually an East African former English colony um, is that they were, the, the political class was educated in English universities in the English way, where it was very administrative. They, they learned how to administrate um, and to kind of run a country day to day without necessarily uh, raping it for all of its worth um, and, and putting no money back into the national economy. Um, so you see this a lot, um, like Kenya and Tanzania are, are very much African success stories um, when it comes to politics, stability. Um, that's why I was able to put in here that one of their things that they do the worst on is their their record on gay rights. Gay gay marriage is not legal in either of these countries. That is, and and then well, that sucks. That's not good. Um, that is about the worst thing about them. Um, it's not legal in any of the other countries we spoke about, but in those countries, they will kill you for being gay. In these countries, you're not allowed to get married. It's a no, no marriage. Everywhere else, it's they, they, you get killed. You, you are put to death by the justice system of those countries. Um, they're relatively stable. Um, Kenya has a, a very large white population. Um, they didn't leave. In a lot of these countries, the people who took power um, kind of just fired all the white bureaucrats, which is fine. I, I agree with that. But they would fire all the white bureaucrats and replace them with African bureaucrats. Um, they didn't do that in Kenya. Um, it, it's, it's part of why there wasn't really a dip. A lot of these countries, they have a dip in their GDP and their output right after independence because they are replacing all the white administrators with Africans who don't necessarily know how to do the job. Um, they're just being, they're just being given a job, which is good. Uh, it didn't happen in Kenya. They, they kept their jobs and then slowly the black bureaucratic class has overtaken the white bureaucratic class. Uh, it's Kenya's an interesting country.
Quest- questions? Okay. No, that's pretty straightforward. The British slightly did colonialism more, in a slightly more not a less way. evil way, but a yeah, in a more I mean, efficient they, way. Like it's they always wanted longevity. Yeah. You know, that was the goal of England's empire. You know, they wanted to control the world, and they knew they couldn't do it from their little shitty island up there. You know, they had to have administrative yeah. real if they wanted this thing to yeah. last they oh, needed also to get with uh, jomo kenyatta exactly. befriending the final colonial governor they, they remained friends until they both died and the the final uh, uh mcdonald the last colonial governor was like by the standards of colonial governors pretty cool like pretty normal um he was very excited actually to hand power over to the kenyans um and he personally thought that kenyatta would make such a good leader for the country that he uh, pressured the British government to give Kenya its independence sooner. Kenyan independence was not scheduled until almost 1970. Um, so he managed to get it through much earlier. This is like cartoonishly mm-hmm. different from mm-hmm. every Tanzania other too. Tanzania also was like, about. everybody was very scared of Julius Nyeri because uh, he's a socialist. He's a pan-African socialist. Um, he's one of the, the leaders behind a, a recent, or was, he's, he's passed away. He was one of the leaders behind one of the more recent African movements to kind of unify the Eastern African countries into a federated state. Um, and the West was like scared of him for a while. Um, and he wound up being a, a pretty, a, a very neutral power. They're very much like a Switzerland um, where he, they did a lot of work with the Chinese, they did a lot of work with the Soviets and a lot of work with the United States, all to Nieri's benefit um, to the development of the country. Um, so yeah, th- these are two success stories and they are right next door to these countries that are failed states. So, um, hmm. okay. we hope that we've given you guys a solid base of understanding of the Congo and its geopolitical neighborhood. Um, while we could definitely go in depth for hours and hours and hours on any one of these countries, um, each has its own long and storied history. We feel it's best to end here and move on to part two, conservation. Part 2, Conservation. Africa is home to the most species of great ape that exist on Earth. From the gorillas of the western lowlands to those of the eastern mountains, the chimpanzees and the bonobos, all but two great apes, the orangutan and the human, remain in the ancestral homeland of all extant apes, Africa. The second most populated continent and by far the most resource abundant on the planet, yet conversely the poorest per capita by a massive margin. We've gone over the multitude of reasons for this, and the impact that this wanton extraction has had on the human population and the overall biodiversity of Africa cannot be understated. Life often struggles to exist where it is being suffocated, and the massive loss of human life as a result of intentional, systematic environmental destruction since the colonization of Africa has been catastrophic. Even still, I do not want to give off the impression that hope is lost. We have emphasized throughout the series that even under the harshest conditions, life finds a way. 
the gorillas of the Congo are not extinct, and thanks to the brave efforts of African conservationists, they are keeping their head above water, at critically endangered on the IUCN Red List. Things may seem like they're not getting better overall, but we would like to... But we would be remiss to not spend the end of this series talking about the people responsible for picking up the pieces and beginning to undo centuries of First, art. we would like to thank the African Primatological Society, an organization dedicated to genuinely increasing the involvement of African populations in their decision-making bodies in the field of primatology, and its president, Inza Kone. Kone is a primate conservationist in Côte d'Ivoire, who began studying the impact of the bushmeat trade on primates in the in Thai National Park in 1997. Since then, he has gone on to publish over 130 academic papers alongside colleagues like Karim Uttara on the impact uh, on the impact of human activities like hunting, political unrest, and climate change uh, on local ecosystems, specifically as they pertain to primates on the Ivory Coast. In 2008, he successfully led a campaign to prevent the conversion of the Tano forest into a palm oil plantation and won the Future for Nature Award in 2009. He has gone on to become a full-time professor at the Felix Houphey Bonny University of uh, Abidjan um, and fill the role of the chairman of the African Primatological Society, Society and uh, co-vice chair of the African Session section of the Primate Specialist Group of the IUCN. He's a cool guy. Great guy. Next, the FFN Award winner of 2014, Caleb Ofori Boateng. Caleb was the first biologist to make an accurate and comprehensive list of all amphibians in Ghana discovering a number of amphibians previously thought to be extinct. He started a herpetology interest group at his university that, in 2011, became the NGO HERP Conservation Ghana. Boateng's method of popularizing conservation in Ghana is a unique but effective one. Since being colonized and sent religious missionaries for centuries, Ghana has become a majority Christian country. About 71.3% of the population is some denomination of Christian, which is even more than the United States is. As is the case with many post-colonial Christian nations, the Christian church is generally seen as one of the only trustworthy sources of information by many communities. Thus, Boateng has developed a massively successful strategy for mobilizing efforts for biodiversity conservation known simply as conservation evangelism. Evangelism? <laughs> Evangel, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm fucking... I, my mom's brain. an evangelist. Why do I know this shit? <laughs> <laughs> um, known simply as conservation evangelism. Conservation evangelism entails utilizing existing religious services to speak at length about the importance of saving local wildlife and engaging in conservation work. Packaged in a religious context in a setting that Ghanaians generally tend to trust, this strategy generally pans out a lot better than the than this strategy generally pans out a lot better than the traditional parachute conservation strategy. Austin, which we could you before. could you go into a little bit of detail about what that looks like? Parachute conservation is sort of like what every single 
primatologist that we've discussed on this podcast has done before this, where they quote-unquote parachute into an African country, set up, um, use the pre-existing colonial levers of power to put themselves in a position to take control of the country's conservation programs, either through NGOs or through the government directly, and set things up the way that they believe that things should be set up. This often does not align with the political or just human needs of anyone in the area, and tends to cause a lot of clashes and tensions between the locals and the conservationists. And, you know, the locals are made an enemy in this process because they're seen as, you know, they don't want to save the gorillas. They're bad. They're trying to kill the gorillas. Um, Generally, when, you know, groups like the African Primatology Society, sorry, the African Primatological Society uh, elevate these voices of local African primatologists, it's because they can think of unique strategies like this that coming from a white person would be like really skeevy and strange and probably not trusted to be honest but like an actual Ghanaian you know I think Protestant I don't I don't remember exactly it's usually Protestantism they're Baptists Baptists oh okay well anyways an actual an actual like local Baptist who understands the culture and understands that like people trust the church through, which for the record, the reason they trust the church is kind of because of colonialism. It's not great, but being able to like use that and know how it works in a not like crazy exploitative colonial way is very useful and it's worked pretty well for Caleb. So it's really cool to see actually. It's sort of like liberation theology if you guys are familiar. Yeah. I listen. We, we, we speak about religion every once in a while on this podcast. It can be a good thing. Spiritualism, religion, it can be a very powerful and, so and one of the, even liberatory yeah. thing. But yeah, one of the big big things about why people trust the church, especially in these highly Christianized countries, um, mm-hmm. while today they don't necessarily fulfill this this good guy, bad guy role, um, they, they, they were considered very much the good guys up until up until and through independence for a lot of these countries because it was usually these Baptists or these Pentecostal uh, missionaries who were helping and and fomenting and harboring groups for independence. Um, Pentecostalism is very popular in these countries. Baptism and Pentecostalism. You might know Pentecostals in America as like the people who talk to snakes and speak in tongues. That's not really the, their thing everywhere. Yep, that's that um, is. But um, that but the the actual speaking yeah. <laughs> in tongues and uh, the the snake imagery that actually comes from Africa. That was brought from Africa back to America. Um, so th- that is th- mm-hmm. these people are very very religious. Um, they take their faith in God very seriously, and it has been uh, syncretized um, with indigenous belief there. Um, so these groups were fighting for independence. They have been the only trustworthy source in a lot of cases, especially in countries um, in the area, Ghana, uh, sometimes. But it, their neighbors have suffered a lot of coups, a lot of military juntas, Western interventions, etc. And throughout all of those things, the church has generally remained a pretty, pretty solid figure in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. This is um. This is a little bit of Chandran lore here. My my mother was a, a raised Pentecostal, uh, and I have been to Pentecostal church quite a few times. Um, when I was much younger, I didn't understand 
the difference between white and black churches that people would describe. Because usually I would go to either mixed Baptist congregations, you know, like integrated Baptist congregations, or I go to Pentecostal stuff every once in a while. I didn't go to church very often, but it's very, it's very eccentric. It's very wild. It's very, you know, um, impassioned. And Pentecostals <laughs> are kind of lunatics here in America. Um, <laughs> uh, they do unironic exorcisms yeah, Catholics do uh, all the time. It seems kind of cool, though. I mean, <laughs> Catholics do it too. Yeah. Um, it's but yeah, it's it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see how religion has has transposed these cultural norms throughout the world. You know. Yeah. All right. So. Next up, a graduate of NC State and, unfortunately, Duke University in North Carolina. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> the Ugandan veterinarian Gladys Kalema Zikusoka. At age 25, Gladys became the first person to hold the position of veterinary officer of the Uganda Wildlife Authority. First person. Along with pioneering Uganda's first wildlife translocation to restock Uganda's national parks following years of poaching during multiple civil wars, uh, not an easy thing to do, Gladys also identified bacterial and parasite transmission from humans to be a major threat to the massively endangered Buindi gorilla population in 2005. That's zoonotic disease transfer. We talk about this quite a bit on the show. The problem with like using tourism to fund, you know, gorilla conservation lies exactly in this. People, if they aren't healthy and they're going to see these gorillas, you know, some dude from France coming down with cholera, giving it to gorillas, it's, uh, it can kill entire populations of gorillas or chimps, whatever you're doing. But she was one of the people to like first identify this as a massive threat to gorilla populations and really like, as a result, following this massive re- following this massive revelation in the field of zoonotic disease transfer, Gladys founded Conservation Through Public Health, a nonprofit organization that improves the lives and well-being of gorillas by first eliminating disease transfer at the source, human healthcare. By tackling human and livestock disease transfer in populations adjacent to wild gorilla populations, the risk of deadly disease outbreaks in gorilla populations became much smaller. Along with winning the Whitley Gold Award and the United Nations Environment Program's Champion of the Earth distinction, Gladys has also, re- has also recently established a program called Gorilla Conservation Coffee, in which her nonprofit secures international market prices for local farmers' Arabica coffee crop, increasing the income and thus standard of living for farmers and communities adjacent to gorilla populations. Um, Folks, use code Travis. At this is a different. This is a different company. <laughs> but maybe you guys should go search out um, her nonprofit. And I'm not sure um, if it's. I don't know. I haven't been to this website. But maybe search it out and see if maybe if you want to buy some coffee, maybe you can buy it through them. Um, it's called Gorilla Conservation Coffee. So maybe maybe check that out. So yeah, I mean, basically the idea here is that humans and gorillas. All primates are now intricately interlinked. You cannot separate their lives in any meaningfully distinct way, you know? Um, human populations living to gorillas will transfer diseases to them if left unchecked. By tackling human needs and human health care, you will, in the process, take care of gorilla health care. 
Mm-hmm. Like it, it's simply that easy. So many yeah, of these if, solutions are so much easier than like going out into the wild and vaccinating gorillas with like a dart gun. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's the false dichotomy of humans and animals. You know, you can you can protect and help the environment by taking care of human beings. Actually, because we are. Yeah. A part of the we all can forget that. Um, if it seems a bit underwhelming for the highest powers of the Imperial Corps to just now be sending some awards and funding to truly spectacular pioneers of conservation in one of the most beaten down and exploited parts of the world, you probably wouldn't be alone. Uh, the Future for Nature Organizations Board is made up entirely of Dutch CEOs and zoo directors, with the chair being a Dutch paint manufacturer. Um, To quote a movie everyone has been watching as a double feature with Barbie lately, they'll pat you on the back, tell you all is forgiven. Just remember, it won't be for you, it will be for them. This all hardly begins to undo centuries of suffering, and the Belgian royal family still has an awful lot of money that doesn't belong to them. The Western world has a lot of value to return to the developing world if we ever want to truly see conservation back in the hands of Africans. Before we sign off, we're going to highlight the stories of two people who have gone up against Western interests, selflessly risking their own lives and safety in active conflict zones, all in order to protect one of the most beautiful, biologically diverse protected areas on the planet, Virunga. Rodriguez Muguruka Katembo was the son of Protestant farmers in the Democratic Republic of Congo, who dreamed of one day becoming a pastor. At the age of 14, Katembo was promised the opportunity to study in Europe at a very good university by a local militia who instead captured him as a child soldier and forced him to witness and commit acts of violence that he would prefer not to dwell upon or detail at length beyond this. Today, Katembo serves as a warden in the Congo's national park system, entrenched daily in battle with poachers, charcoal harvesters, and multiple militia groups. Among the many attempting to harvest the legally protected bounty of Africa's oldest and most valuable national parks, not all of them are poor, hungry, or desperate to claim some strip of area to sell off for their cause. Some of them are an international oil and gas exploration company based in London. During his time as a warden at Virunga National Park, Katembo strapped hidden cameras to his body and covertly recorded dealings between Congolese officers and SOCO, now known as Pharos Energy. That's P-H-A-R-O-S, East Castle House 2728, East Castle Street, London, United Kingdom. In 2010, Pharos Energy was granted an oil exploration permit by Congolese officials that included a protected area of Virunga that would have displaced roughly half of the remaining mountain gorilla population in the wild. It's worth mentioning here that oil exploration is not exploration in the way that your mind may immediately assume. Oil exploration exploration involves subterranean seismic activity, typically in the form of large underground explosions, in order for an oil company's seismic recording equipment to detect large deposits of oil for drilling. This alone is very disruptive and even potentially dangerous to all surrounding wildlife, even outside of the exploration area. But in 2011, Pharaoh's energy employees allegedly even forced their way, mm, I'm not going to say that, 
But in 2011, Pharos Energy employees allegedly forced their way into the park to skirt legal regulations and explore Again, everyone at home. Protected That's Pharos Energy, P-H-A-R-O-S, East Castle House, 2728, East Castle they Street, London, UK. Um, you know... They rebranded. That doesn't mean anything. They're still in but, Egypt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of shit that should make you so pick up some books. Maybe some glass bottles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe some glass some bottles. Some other uh, device to send within the <laughs> mail system. Perhaps needless to say, the undercover footage recorded bribes from Pharos Energy directed towards him and other park officials offered in exchange for information that would allow Pharos to drill for oil in protected areas of Virunga. Turning over this footage to be used in the release of the critically acclaimed documentary Virunga in 2014 successfully pressured Pharos to suspend further exploration in Virunga, but not withdraw or relinquish its permits. Supposedly, Pharos told the Congolese government that they were planning to stay, quote, in the hope that the park borders would be changed. Interesting. To read between the lines there. Pharos has not pursued further expansion into Virunga National Park, instead opting to focus its African efforts on Egypt while also drilling in so Vietnam and I want to just pause here for, for one moment to just talk about oil exploration. Um, so oil exploration, um, this is, while this is directly affecting, you know, very, very vulnerable primate populations, as well as displacing possibly tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people who live in this region, um, this is not a this is not a distinctly African phenomena. Um, I, I know people personally, and we may have heard on the news in the last couple of years um, of of random earthquakes um, in the middle of the of the middle of the United States um, in Oklahoma, uh, northern Texas, uh, Nebraska, places like that. Um, yeah, and, and that is actually a direct result of, of fracking, which is which is a type of. Uh, oil drilling um, where they drill horizontally across uh, right underneath the surface of, uh, of the earth. Um, and as oil is pulled out of these, these large reserves, um, the, the ground physically settles. Um, the, the surface of the planet settles into these open voids um, where oil used to sit and kind of hold the rock above it up. Um, so this is a problem that happens all over the place. And it has a massive detrimental effects on, human quality of life above these wells, um, wildlife above these wells. A, a lot of places, um, you can go see these in Texas and Oklahoma where these, the, once these wells are sucked dry um, and the ground starts to settle, the wells are just, sometimes they're not even capped off. They, they pull the equipment out of the hole in the ground. It's a hole like maybe eight inches wide. Um, they pull the equipment out. Sometimes they cap it. Sometimes they fucking don't. Um, and it destroys the environment around the well um, because as the ground settles, any remaining oil gets pushed up through the hole. Um, and then you just have crude oil sitting on the surface of the planet. Um, it's, not, it's not really supposed to be there. There's not a lot of places on Earth where just crude oil just kind of sits on the surface. Um, and it'll destroy the environment. Animals get caught in it. Um, if they walk through it, they'll get stuck. They'll sink. They'll try to lick it off of themselves and poison themselves and die. Um People get humans get cancer. Humans get all kinds of different illnesses. Um, it's this is a worldwide problem. So if you're ever thinking about um, ways to help the environment, um, 
Oil executive addresses are generally public information. Uh, just remember that. <laughs> so, while Pharos got a name change, a new president, and a fresh start, Katembo was not so lucky. Katembo's conservation efforts made him a target of death threats by Congolese authorities, miners, and rebels, causing him to transfer to the Upemba National Park in southeastern DRC for his own safety. In 2013, Katembo was arrested by Congolese soldiers and intelligence officials for his efforts to defend Virunga and tortured for 17 days straight. Attempts on the life of Virunga Park rangers are commonplace as tensions continue to build, and many rangers aren't as lucky as Katembo. Since 1996, more than 130 rangers have been killed in the Virunga National Park by various parties. In an interview with NPR, he had this to say, quote, I was not doing it only for myself and the Congolese people, but for humanity. I'm scared for my security, and I know that the enemy that we are fighting against is very strong and has a lot of money. With this money, they can do many things. If I look at it in terms of a human being, yes, I am scared for my security, but I hope my God will keep protecting me. Anyway, God bless this man. God bless Um, this man. So, finally... We'd like to end our series by acknowledging Andre Bauma, uh, a Virunga park ranger, guerrilla caretaker, and primatologist. Reading now from a profile written on Bauma by the BBC. Andre Bauma has been taking care of orphan mountain gorillas at Virunga since 2007 and loves them as if they were his own children. Um, quote from Bauma, We are constantly threatened, not only by the militias inside the park, but also in general by the population. There is a lot of poverty, so people try to survive. They will try to use the resources of the park, whether it be wood to make charcoal, fields for agriculture, or illegal fishing. One gorilla, um, Takasi, is particularly close to Bama. We share the same bed. I play with her. I feed her. I can say I am her mother, he says. Takasi was a two-month-old infant when her mother was shot at close range through the back of the head. The park described it as an execution. Takasi was still clinging to her dead mother when they found her. She was tiny. Uh, she only weighed a couple of kilos, says Bauma. As night approached, Andre held Takasi clo- close to keep her warm and tried to hydrate her by dabbing milk on her gums and tongue. Andre emerged from the forest the next day with Takasi with still alive as a foster parent. Ever since he picked her up from the forest floor, he has dedicated his life to saving hers. Every single individual gorilla is crucial because it's an endangered species. So we had to take care of it. We took her in, he says. Ndakasi's life was well documented in several shows and films, including the documentary Virunga, where she can be seen consumed in laughter while being tickled by a caretaker. She's also risen to internet fame in 2019 when a selfie of her went viral on Earth Day, standing upright behind Andre with her hands by her sides. In 2021, after being raised by the caretakers of the Senkwekwe Center for 14 years, Ndakasi contracted a prolonged illness in which her condition rapidly deteriorated, but despite medical care. On the evening of September 26th, she passed away in the arms of her caretaker, longtime friend, and foster parent, Andre Bauma. Many people left Erumangabo, but for me, I felt obliged to stay with gorillas here. You must justify why you are eh, on this earth. 
gorillas justify why I am here. The future of the Congo remains uncertain, as does the future of gorillas. However, there are people fighting to protect them every day in ways we have never been able to, fighting in ways beyond the scope of UN advisory councils, outside the boardrooms of American NGOs, outside the universities in their lecture halls, and outside the rooms of three guerrilla podcasters. As the M23 rebel groups surrounded the Virunga Park headquarters, the wounded were cared for in veterinary hospitals, and everyone in the area was evacuated under a hail of explosions and gunfire. Everyone except for the park rangers. Andre Bauma was filmed cleaning an AK-47 outside of the guerrilla enclosure before the impending conflict and left the documentary crew with what could have been his parting words. You must justify why you are on this earth. Guerrillas justify why I am here. They are my life. So if it is about dying, I will die for the guerrillas. Dressons nos fronts, longtemps courbés, et pour de bon, prenons le plus bel élan dans la paix au peuple ardent. Par le labeur, nous bâtirons un pays plus beau qu'avant dans la paix citoyenne. L'hymne sacré de votre solidarité Fièrement saluez L'emblème d'or de votre souveraineté Don béni Congo Des aïeux Congo Au pays Congo Bien-aimé Congo Nous peuplerons ton sol et nous assureront ta grandeur 30 juin au doux soleil 30 juin du 30 juin jour sacré soit le témoin jour sacré de l'immortel servant de liberté que nous léguons à notre postérité